difficult to bag a patient versus unable to bag a patient. It's like hitting a brick wall. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Pete's Grit Podcast. My name is Zach Hodges, and I'm a current PICU fellow at UT Southwestern in Dallas. And I'm Alice Shanklin. I'm a Peds ICU fellow at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. Alice, will you remind our listeners what we do here at the Pete's Grit Podcast? Yes, we're a collaborative educational PICU podcast. That means that we work with pediatric critical care educators, mostly across the United States, but also internationally, to create high-yield blog and podcast episodes on core PICU topics. And listeners, if you're a pediatric critical care provider and would like to become involved in this project, be sure to reach out to us by email or on our website at pedscrit.com. We're hoping to create a space to further add to the online community of peds ICU learners by collaborating with guest educators on their favorite critical care topics. Yes, please reach out. We would be so excited to hear from you. So Zach, who are we talking with today? Today, we're excited to have Gina Patel and Alyssa Stoner back on the show. Dr. Alyssa Stoner is an assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City School of Medicine, and is a pediatric intensivist at Children's Mercy, Kansas City. Yes. And Dr. Gina Patel is a second year peds critical care fellow at Children's Mercy. In these episodes, we're talking about the medications required for intubation. And on part two, we're talking about pre-medications and how to choose the appropriate agents for analgesia and sedation. Yes, so many factors to consider, and Gina and Alyssa had such good insights. So let's get to the episode. So we talked a little bit about um, kind of those general anesthetics. The next kind of category that I wanted to cover is the pre-medication component. This is something that at our institution, we don't always utilize, but at other institutions, like where I did my residency at, there's not a single kid who got intubated that did not have some sort of premedication provided to them prior to the intubation. So I think it is very institutional specific. And, you know, this is where the art of medicine comes into play. Just because one person does it one way doesn't mean that it's right or wrong. It's just a different approach. And so when we think about premedication, the population that comes to mind is that infant population. So what's different in that infant population than maybe the school age child? So I think about a, a young baby becoming bradycardic relatively quickly if they get hypoxic. Or even with vagal stimulation, right? You are going to look at their glottic opening and you're going to provide significant vagal stimulation. And the infants can very quickly become bradycardic in that scenario. And so oftentimes a pre-medication of either atropine or glycopyrrolate will be provided in your kind of context of what you're going to use for induction agents. The nice thing about both glycopyrrolate and atropine is it's also going to dry up your secretions. So if you have a kid who has tons of secretions in their oral airway, this will be nice to give even like as you're setting up the room. So you walk in the room, ask the pharmacist, hey, can I give this kid a dose of atropine while you're getting everything else ready? You'll see the heart rate increase and then kind of their secretions will dry up. I feel like I've seen atropine given as pre-medication, but I haven't really seen glycopyrrolate given as anything beyond like a chronic enteral secretion medication. Mm-hmm. Kind of like still just enteral dose, just sort of the same. No, you actually use IV dosing. Use IV dosing. I feel like anesthesia uses it quite a bit in the OR and we don't realize it. They use it also for the heart rates and then to preemptively decrease the secretions in the posterior oropharynx, but medications like ketamine is a sialagogue. So they preemptively just utilize it as part of their induction if they know they're going to give ketamine. 
Is that something you think about a lot when you're deciding whether or not to use ketamine is their baseline secretions and whether it's going to acutely get worse? I would say in the setting of your one-time dose of ketamine, the amount of secretions that you see increase is very limited. But if you have to use repeated doses or you're on like a continuous infusion for various reasons, that's when your secretions or bronchorrhea can be more of an issue. And so I've used ketamine in other scenarios in which they end up on a ketamine infusion for pain reasons and then incorporated glycopyrrolate as part of their regimen. So we understand that the bronchorrhea isn't a change in their physiology. It's what we're doing to them. Oh, interesting. Are there particular factors like age or other things that would make you choose between atropine and glycopyrrolate? I think it's comfort level. As you said, Alice, there's, you know, you've heard a lot of people using atropine as the premedication, but not necessarily glycopyrrolate. We have had a anesthesiologist slash critical care medicine doctor who, you know, he was very comfortable using glycopyrrolate. And so the ongoing joke in the unit was that he would pass it out like Pez, you know, because that's what he was comfortable with. And so I think it really is comfort level um, and not necessarily age or any other parameters. Oh, wow. Any other pre-meds? Yeah. So the one other thing that I consider a pre-medication and kind of put in this category is IV lidocaine, which sounds a little bit bizarre, but it's specifically used for really one true indication. And that's really in the setting of somebody you're worried about increased intracranial pressure. And so the thought is, is if you give IV lidocaine five to 10 minutes before you're going to intubate this patient, that you decrease the level of irritation when you go to look at their vocal cords. And so you prevent this Valsalva maneuver that then would increase their ICP. There are some people that strongly feel that this is effective and there are other people who think that it is not effective and so don't use it. And so it is provider specific, Mm -hmm. particularly within our institution and maybe institution specific, depending on where you end up. So one of those things that's really hard to measure if it actually helps or not. So it kind of falls in the art of medicine, like you said. Yeah. So lidocaine, only in the context of traumatic brain injury, about five to 10 minutes before you go to intubate. That's that right? Not necessarily traumatic brain injury, anything that might cause increased intracranial pressure. So it could be like an infectious cause. So if you have somebody who has meningitis or somebody who has a tumor or other reasons for cerebral edema aside from trauma. Mm. So that covers kind of our pre-medication categories or general anesthetics. And so what that really leaves us with is kind of your analgesic choice and your amnestic choices. And then that will lead into kind of your neuromuscular blockade. I think standardly in our ICU, we tend to use fentanyl as our analgesic choice and kind of that additional induction agent primarily because it's relatively hemodynamically stable. There is an association of hypotension between the addition of the opioid plus the benzodiazepine, but but fentanyl does seem to be more hemodynamically stable than, say, morphine. Mm -hmm. There is some risks um, associated with rapid IV boluses of fentanyl, and what um, might that be? So you can definitely get rigid chest syndrome if you push your fentanyl too quickly. And that's when you cannot move the chest when you're trying to ventilate and bag the patient. And so the treatment for that would be a paralytic. But you definitely want to avoid that. Alyssa and I had a situation where the kid likely developed rigid chest and it seemed like the paralytic wasn't effective for whatever reason at the time. So it it definitely put us in a 
a hairy situation. So even though the solution is to give a paralytic um, and not to worry about it, I personally always worry about whether the paralytic will work in the moment and um, whether I will be able to protect the patient's airway. So just something to avoid and the best way to avoid the patient developing rigid chest is to slow push your fentanyl. So anytime the nurse is, or whoever is about to push the medication, I just remind them, please slow push the fentanyl now and then go from there. And then it also depends on how quickly you provide the flush afterwards as well. Mm-hmm. So is this something that's really common if you were to push the fentanyl too quickly? And how easily can you diagnose this? I imagine if you had a patient with poor lung compliance, it might be difficult to bag anyway. Yeah, that's a good point. So it is more frequently seen in the infant population. And then the additional point is, if you do have that poor of pulmonary compliance, it can be really difficult to bag a patient. But there is a significant difference of difficult to bag a patient versus unable to bag a patient. And you'll kind of, it's, it's like hitting a brick wall. You'll see them get pretty profoundly hypoxic associated with it. And sometimes what I have encountered is the amount of flush that is being given behind the paralytic dose isn't necessarily the appropriate amount. And this kind of comes into play, particularly in the case of kids who have indwelling catheters, somebody who has like a central port in place or a pick line in place, you need to make sure that you get everything through the lumen of the catheter. And so what I've found is that, you know, they'll just instill like half an ML and it really everything is still sitting in your catheter and not intravascularly. And so just kind of making sure that, you know, the nurses are aware of that process. You know, push the fentanyl very slowly, monitor for adequate chest rise and easy to bag. And if you do find yourself in that situation, give your paralytic as soon as you can. Exactly. What other analgesic do we want to cover? I really wasn't going to touch base on any other analgesic in that setting, um, primarily because we usually only use fentanyl. I think really the next category goes into your benzodiazepine. And so that comes into play. Typically, we're going to use Versed or midazolam because it is the shorter acting agent when compared to lorazepam or diazepam. And dosing wise, we're typically going to give that full dose of 0.1 milligrams per kilo. But bear in mind that this also can cause hypotension particularly in the setting of using it with an opioid. So just being cognizant of what your hemodynamics are prior to administering that combination of fentanyl and midazolam. Mm. And they're really, from a short-term standpoint, I don't see there being a huge reason not to give midazolam in that particular instance. If you really are uncertain about something, one approach other people or some people have taken is primarily just using the opioid. So giving like a very large dose of fentanyl. So doing like a five mic per kilo of fentanyl and avoiding the Versed and adding it in afterwards. And so they kind of do that bigger dose of the fentanyl, do the rocuronium, and then we'll do like a 0.05 per kilo of the Versed kind of after everything said and done and their hemodynamics have laid out. And it kind of goes back into that principle you mentioned earlier where you can give small doses and repeat them if necessary, right? Exactly. Obviously, if you give your neuromuscular blocker, you're going to lose your exam. So you probably should know where you're at before you give your your blocker. 
Right. And that's the exact approach that we take in kind of that delayed sequence um, intubation. And you might find, particularly in kids who maybe have had long hospital courses or have had, you know, chronic medical problems like an oncologic process and have been exposed to opioids, you may need to give a large amount of opioids in order to adequately sedate them. So you really are going to titrate to effect, right? Like this isn't something that, you know, like, oh, there's a max dose of five per kilo you can't give anymore. No, you titrate to effect. Just like any treating anybody's pain. Exactly. What's the worst things that happen? They'll stop breathing? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you're, they're going to stop breathing and you're going to put the breathing tube in. And thank you for listening to this episode of Pete's Grit. Please remember that everything discussed is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as a replacement for medical advice. The views expressed during this episode by hosts and our guests are also their own and do not reflect the official positions of their institutions. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedscritpodcast at gmail.com. You can also check out pedscrit.com for detailed show notes and visit at critpeds on Twitter and at pedscrit on Instagram for real-time show updates. Thank you again for listening.